Welcome to Under the Skin with me, Russell Brand. This show is sponsored by my new book, Recovery, which is available now. You can go and get that on Amazon or you can get it from russellbrand.com. And also, if you want to see me live, there are some fantastic shows for you to see my Rebirth Tour app. Come and see me in Leeds, 18th of October. Importantly, London at the Hammersmith Apollo, 31st of October, 1st of November. Go on the website now. A few tickets available for that. Nottingham, 2nd of November. Coventry, 8th of November. Leicester, 13th of November. And also this, your sex life is about to get more intimate. Skin condoms are made from a revolutionary polyisoprene material called Skin Feel. It's softer and more comfortable than traditional latex, all that stuff, while allowing for better heat transfer. Nice. So both you, yeah, go on, and your partner, oh then, get a natural feel, full of sensitivity for a more connected sexual experience. Skin condoms are completely safe for anyone with latex allergy, are just as safe as latex condoms, and they still offer the same level of protection against pregnancy and STIs. And now you can use code 15POD25SKIN for 20% off the Skin Selection 24-pack on Amazon. Use that code for your uh, reduction there. Now it's time for Under the Skin. May Martin is an award-winning Canadian writer and comedian who's performed sell-out seasons in Australia, Edinburgh and London. Nominated for Best Show at this year's Edinburgh Festival, her current show, Dope, examines a lifetime of obsessions, fandom and addiction. She has appeared on BBC Two's Live from the BBC and Comedy Central and recently presented her critically acclaimed series, May Martin's Guide to the 21st Century Sexuality. There wouldn't be an article before that. May Martin's Guide to 21st Century Sexuality on BBC Radio 4. May Martin, thank you for joining me on Under the Skin. Thanks for having me. I'm a fan of you. You seem like a pretty advanced person. Ditto. Yeah, oh, really? Yeah. Thank you very much. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks. You're a, an addict like me in recovery. Yeah. Yeah. For ages now. Um, maybe 10 years. Yeah. How did you know that you uh, had a problem with substances and that you needed to change? Um, it was just all kind of my teens were kind of explosive and I, I started doing comedy really young. I think you did too, didn't you? Not and as young as you. You were like were 11, weren't you? I was, well, when I was 11, a comedian like got me up on stage and made me be his um, ventriloquist dummy. So I, I wouldn't count that, but when I was 13. <laughs> You're not seeing that as a, no. a pioneering experience. Yeah, he, he uh, I was in the front row. I always loved comedy and then he got me up and he said, I'll squeeze the back of your neck and you open your mouth. And I'll make you say stuff. But he thought I was a little boy because I was in a, like a th- three-piece suit. Uh-huh. And so he's making me say like filthy stuff. And uh, anyway, it was fun and got lots of laughs and then got obsessed with it. Um, yeah, so then in my teens, started doing drugs and uh, got kicked out of my house. and ended Why? Up, uh, my parents were, well, they read my diaries, actually. I, I mean, rookie mistake. I've been keeping these like meticulous diaries and they found out all the stuff I'd been doing and then I guess their reaction was um some level of anger and they were doing tough love so they said you can't live here anymore and then I think that was a a way how old were you here 16 that's very very young yeah that's in Toronto is it 
I suppose that that's the age where I first moved out when I was 16, also kind of in pursuit of addiction. Yeah. No one made me leave except the addiction itself. Thinking about it now, the reason that you're a fascinating guest, of course, you're like within the field of comedy, you're highly respected and you're doing brilliantly. But also, I suppose, topically, you're doing stuff that's kind of defining of our time your show before your last one was about gender and gender identity your most recent show is about addiction in a sense like in anglophonic and possibly non-anglophonic countries these are determining ideas like whereas people look to understand uh, evolving and dissolving forms of categorization we look for different ways to understand ourselves can you talk us through uh, whether or not that question is clever that i've just <laughs> or observation it wasn't really a question was it it's very clever Thank um you. very flattering um but yeah i think uh we hear the word spectrum a lot and i think well with addiction anyway i think if you've um had a problem with drugs and then you've acknowledged i'm an addict it can be quite isolating and you feel like you're part of this kind of small subsection of the world who just can't handle their shit and then it's been it's, i mean this is a really recent thing for me just reading about it and learning about like the biochemistry of it and recognizing addictive behavior and other all the stuff you've been talking about um but i think you're further along with it than me i'm still like my mind is blown and suddenly you're like oh it's a spectrum of behavior and i think it's the same thing with with sexuality you can think oh, i'm this weird you know queer person and then you think, oh, everybody has a sexuality and it's a spectrum. Yes, it's extraordinary, actually. It's something I've only been learning about because I'm probably substantially older than you and, and, and was probably educated in a different way, had different sort of cultural references. When I see something like 40% of people under 25 don't identify with a sort of a homogenous sexual group yeah. and are more interested in fluidity, you know, even though I think of myself as a sort of a countercultural person, I'm sort of, oh, really? people are changing. I know, me too, though. Like, I... I mean, I'm 30. I think of myself as pretty, like, cool. But then yeah. I do gigs at universities and, like, freshers' weeks. And they're, I don't know the right terminology, and I'm, like, putting my foot in my mouth. And they're so tuned into it. They've got all gender-neutral toilets, and they all have crazy terms for themselves and it's awesome it's great in a way it sort of makes sense i suppose that what you know someone of my age and older is like there are very clear identity roles there are very clear social roles and i, I i've been questioning a lot lately what, how i would identify and how i'd have grown up if the conversation had been more advanced yeah. in my own adolescence because you know well, the main feeling i had growing up in an ordinary uh, Essex home, a suburban home, was, oh, I'm not like the other boys. Yeah. But it turns out that the other boys weren't like the other boys. It's just that, that, that we were all magnetised to an imaginary category. And whilst there is, you know, I don't know, Canada's one of the most sort of foremost places. You know, yeah. There seems like there is a biochemical basis for at least some sort of biological and anatomical aspects of gender. Uh, but but beyond that, the way people identify, demonstrate and represent their sexuality mm. it seems like uh, something that we need to examine a lot more closely. What, what's, what are your observations on that? I think it's so interesting. I think all the way we're talking about it, it's all like still in its infancy. I think uh -huh. in, in 25 years it'll be so different, but it's so hard to sort of disentangle um, cultural influences and stuff in terms of gender roles and what's normal for men and women. And you're right, there's a biological thing, but there's also, I mean, it's so hard to undo those early influences about what, it, you know, masculinity and femininity. So, yeah, it's interesting. I think if we can disentangle those, people will be a lot less stressed, I think. 
We're both sort of androgynous looking people within our sort of basic gender group, aren't yeah, we? Yeah, you're quite a beautiful man. Yeah, I've Thank been you. told I'm, what I was ha- going for. I'm a handsome woman. I get that a lot. <laughs> yeah, you're beautiful. Like Thank I suppose, you. When I've been doing this, um, when I've been doing this book stuff, uh, like you know, when young people are coming to like sort of signings and to my show, I've been having sort of conversations that have really opened my mind up. I was speaking to a young person, and God, now I'm going to have to say they said, you know, I identify as binary. I don't identify with any particular gender, and I really felt myself on the precipice of my own understanding yeah. and my own linguistic abilities and my own prejudices yeah right what do you think is going to be the key component here because one of the things that i've noticed around identity politics is people that are sort of uh are you know traditional or conservative often feel i think a lot of shame and a lot of confusion yeah. and it can become quite oppositional quite quickly totally um there, yeah i think it's easy to experience like a real sense of vertigo about it because it's just happened so exponentially quickly and and there's all these new words and it feels like i don't i don't know how you are at math and stuff, but I, I used to get this panic in math class, like when they would introduce things like algebra and, I, and I'd be like, it just doesn't, it's too much information. And mm. you just, and I dropped out of school pretty much because I was like, Ugh. and I think people have that feeling. And I think the main thing is just asking questions. And then there's a responsibility in the people who are using these new words to explain patiently. And we can all just be patient, you know. How did you look at these themes in your stand-up show and where are you personally on these ideas of I, identification? I um, I had... My parents were real hippies and, um, yeah, so growing up they were always... This is... I mean, I'm only just realising and from moving to England, like, how unusual this is that when I was a kid they would always say, you know, you'll grow up and you'll meet a man or a woman mm. and it, always they just presented it as an equal option. That is good. But I, I saw... I, who knows if that's... Like, I've always been bisexual. I always dated men and women. So I don't know if it's because they said that or maybe they were like, well, she keeps wearing suits and, like, we should give her, we should, <laughs> Yeah, like... that three-piece suit you had on yeah. when you were at that magician show, firstly, I think you were overdressed for any gender yeah. identity for a magic show. Bow tie and <laughs> suspenders. Yeah, so I was lucky in that area. So I've always been bisexual and it's been great. But, yeah. What I've found surprising as a new father of a female child. Congrats. Thank you. It's yeah. blowing my mind. Yeah. Uh, like it's really, it, it vacillates between this sort of a spiritual sense of, oh, wow, new consciousness has emerged. Glory, yeah. glory that yeah. she exists. And kind of, oh, you little vicious bastard. Yeah. Ow, get off me. Like it's a really pendular experience. Yeah. No control, no off button. Extraordinary. But I've become very sensitive uh, in a way that sort of surprises me around identity yeah like um i guess my wife is more traditional than i am and puts like you know sometimes puts her in dresses and things like that and i've sometimes i'm like i want to just to wear things that are practical for someone that can't walk upright yeah. so she should just be wearing little pants and stuff you know and and like i don't, I don't know because in a way you could look at this as that very sort of conventional and old-fashioned idea that perhaps i'm a man who sort of unconsciously wanted to have a male child <laughs> i don't feel that at all but i don't like the i don't like any ornamentation of femininity yeah. on her because it feels like something's being put on her yeah. that's not she's not choosing yeah they did this experiment i always get experiments wrong but i think this is it where they had a baby in neutral clothing in a room have you heard this and then people would come in and play with the baby and sometimes they'd say it's a boy baby and then Mm. when they said it was a boy baby everyone was like bouncing it really aggressively not aggressively but really physical and 
always face the baby looking away from them. And then when they said it was a little girl, they all turned the baby towards them and just sort of cuddled it. And that, like, yeah, that's sort of so Yes. Hmm. We're not really conscious of how we're like, I talk to parents. One of the things you hear a lot when you become a dad is people say, um, oh, yeah, but, you know, they just do start playing with vacuum cleaners yeah. if they're a girl and if they're a boy, they immediately sign up to be in the Marines. <laughs> like, And you say, no, you don't, you, we're not aware of the unconscious cues that we totally. give to children. I'm doing that thing already of, uh, like, when people go, because this is a question people like to ask me on chat shows. They like to go, well, you being such a womanizer, how are you going to feel when your daughter's 16 and she brings home a Russell Brown? I go, she might not bring home a man. She might be a gay person. Yeah. We don't know like, who she's going to come home with. Such so gutted, your question's not worked. Yeah, <laughs> I do that too. And my friend has a, a two-year-old niece, and they came back from some baby thing where they do. You, does she, your daughter do this? You, they Is sit it called in a like circle. sort of monkey music class? Yeah, or something? and they just bang stuff, and all the parents are like, "They're so talented." It's <laughs> like that. So they they bring the two-year-old back, and then I hear myself going, I guess, in this smarmy way, like, "Oh, so do you have a boyfriend yet?" Like to the two, like I'm saying that. Why am I doing that? Yeah, right. Look at us. We're unaware of our own conditioning. Yeah. So this is some like continually within your stand-up comedy. Is this the kind of perspective you try to have as a comedian? Tell me a little bit about your process of conception. Like, how did you come to the idea that you were going to write your very successful show, Dope? Um, I, I guess it's like we were saying. Like, I always, I've always wanted to talk about drugs and that period in, in my life. But I guess I haven't felt. Like I have enough distance from it or perspective on it to do it in a way where I can keep it really light and be in control of it. And then I had a this breakup like two years ago and it just felt so similar to getting off cocaine. Like it was, I was like, oh, I know this feeling exactly. And then started reading about it and then had this, you know, started seeing these patterns in all areas of my life. So then I started improvising it on stage and it was way too dark and then just slowly adding punchlines. Is that what you do? You do like a work in progress and it's like too serious. And so then you, you add. You start off, your development process is to start with just being very, very honest and personal. Yeah, uncomfortably so. Yeah. Yeah. How do you feel at that stage of development? I really en enjoy it. I don't know what that, it's kind of masochistic sometimes, isn't yeah. it? Especially when you're like, I know there's no punchline coming. So it's quite... Uh, intense but I like that and then I every other year in Edinburgh I do an improvised show where I, people write down questions and then I answer them and then it comes out of that too because you get to know what people want to hear you talk about and yeah that's, yeah, yeah. I, I like that idea I have a similar process but for me my access point for comedy is to start saying things that are truthful Often, actually, one of my uh, guiding principles is, does this make me feel a bit ashamed? Yeah, totally. Yeah. To, to do, do your ears get hot? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah like, yeah. Oh, I don't want people to know that about me. That's awful. Yeah. And then, but that's, there's something about that exposure. So what, if you don't mind me asking, what kind of revelations were you making about the breakup? What kind of realizations did you have? Just like, I mean, they've done, um, they've compared brain scans, haven't they? It's like a a coke addict and someone who says they're madly in love and it's so you I just think the hormones and things are insane and and I, during the breakup I just I felt so not like myself and there's it was such a so the right thing to do to end it but there we'd like relapse and it just I was using all this terminology that I was like god this is yeah and and not the healthiest relationship to love and how can you lose yourself so completely in it yeah so was it a damaging relationship it wasn't the best, yeah. It uh -huh. was great in, in a lot of ways, but not not the best. But yeah, 
<laughs> like they were punishing components to it. I've only recently started, you know, like sometimes, I'm, sometimes I think I'm really clever, but then I realise, no, you're not clever. You're like an idiot because everything yeah. <laughs> takes me much too long to realise and really like sort of like... I, I think I go through convoluted, complex neurological routes to make the most basic observations, like family life yeah. is nice. And like, like nature it, is healthy. And na- <laughs> <laughs> yeah, nature is healthy. That, yeah. I'm still working on nature is healthy. Yeah. That's a, a very long thesis of examination of yeah. grass, the colour green, <laughs> photosynthesis, interconnectivity, yeah. the role of oxygen. I mean, I, I, I will look at that for ages before I yeah. say, well, why don't you just go for a walk in the woods, you see? Yeah. So, you know, like it's taken me a long time to come to terms with that. But I noticed that my own tendency in relationships without being disparaging about the particular individuals I was in relationships with yeah. was to set up um, dramatic yeah, situations. Yeah, anxiety-producing situations. And then it's so euphoric when you soothe that anxiety. It's this quite weird cycle. Yes, it is. And, and obviously uh, analogous to addiction, that if you continually find yourself in a place where, oh, I'm not good enough, they're never going to call. Yeah. Oh, they've called. I'm brilliant. I'm fantastic. Now to maintain this. Oh, no. Yeah. If I can only pretend to be someone else for another five years, <laughs> yeah. then hopefully we can have a child. Exactly that. Yeah. Yeah. And that is a little, I mean, sometimes I think that substance addiction is the most rational form yeah, of addiction. Because you it's c- a direct route to the good feeling instead of the other ones are quite convoluted yeah you're right yeah and yeah. easier to control i mean as long as you have sort of a reliable hookup yeah. access to cocaine and heroin or whatever drugs young people take these days is can be much easier than the sort of giddy awful uh, vertiginous experience of being in love yeah so yeah. that's a lot of what your show is about is it is about how your drug addiction as a young person leading you to be expelled from the family home is yeah. you've found those patterns repeating themselves in romantic situations yeah I think I always just thought I got addicted to drugs and then I went to rehab and then I've been clean ever since and I never really thought about it with much more depth and then now I'm thinking or I mean early on when I was about six I had this mad obsession with Bette Midler like really I saw the world through this lens of Bette Midler that just everything was in relation to Bette Midler. I was so obsessed with her. Everything was in relation to Bette Midler. Yeah, what would Bette think about this? What's mm. she wearing today? <laughs> like, I loved her. Mm. I mean, my grades were slipping at school because I was just sitting Bet thinking Midler. about Bette Midler. Yeah. And what then comedy your... and then drugs and then relationships. Bette Midler was your gateway. Yeah. Big How did you, what, what was it about? What was it? Beaches? Hocus Pocus. That the one where they're witches, is yeah, it? Yeah, yeah. Right, so you're a little kid in Canada. You're in a little yeah. three-piece suit. Yeah, literally this, yeah. <laughs> and I went, I think I saw it 12, 13 times in cinemas. And it just, I mean, it must have been a, a sexual thing. I must have had a crush on Bette Midler and I just lost my mind. I, so, mm. She's so um, what is vivacious it? and this, sassy. The vivacity, the yeah. sass. She's sassy. I Strong did. woman. Yeah, right. She'd take care of us, wouldn't she? Yeah, she would. She'd like. She's gather us up and tells us like it's going to be okay. Exactly. But then yeah. hold on a minute, it's getting a bit sexual. And she'd sort of cut you down quite cruelly, but then, you know what I mean? It would be. You. She's thrilling. I was like being a bit flash, and then Bet goes, "What are you going to do with that little thing?" Yeah, and exactly. I go, oh! that. Yeah, <laughs> and then yeah, she yeah. cuddles me up, and it's all yeah. nice. She goes, "Oh, there you go. Oh God, actually, I'm getting into it I now." I know. Like you're looking at her lovingly, and she's like, "Why don't you take a picture? It'll last longer." Oh God, <laughs> yeah. Bet, shut up! Yeah. Oh come on, I love you. Yeah. <laughs> like um. Once I saw her accept an award at the Golden Globes and she said, how about these couple of Golden Globes? 
gesturing to no. her own breasts. Yeah, that's her style. And something went all unusual in me. <laughs> <laughs> like something glitched in me and I felt a feeling. Yeah. I felt a feeling in my, in my tummy. <laughs> I went all unusual. Now, do you think this is something essential? Because obviously Bette Midler is a gay icon. Yeah. So it's, it's odd before you would have had any overt or cultural sense of uh, gender or sexual identity that you would automatically found yourself to sort of some sort of quintessential figure within the pantheon. Yeah, you're right. I mean, I th- maybe I was just into witches as well, though. I, I, any kind of you didn't Disney like the villain. other witches. I bet there was another one, weren't there? Yeah. Me- Meryl Street, one of the others, or something. Sarah Jessica Parker she could have gone for that. Yeah, not into it. Just bet because she was the most evil, I think. Um, mm. And her voice, and yeah, no, I don't know. Yeah, I must have been. That happens a lot, though. I mean, I was obsessed with um, Scary Spice as, as a child, and then now I'm like, well, she's kind of a gay icon too. Look yeah. at that. So it's weird, isn't it? Because I. I think a lot about constructs, cultural, like whether or not we're attaching to these things or if there is an essential truth. In a way, this crosses over with some of Jung's ideas of synchronicity, that there is something happening on a psychic level that is relating to the objective world. And whereas, of course, a materialist will tell you, no, there are just overt patterns that signify nothing, things of their material value. But if you as a little kid in Toronto somehow happen upon gay icons, not in a particular context and, and i know you are that your identity is more complex than that but it's just interesting that that figure yeah. is she because i've never understood it's not like bet midler she's not gay or anything is it it's just no. she's a particular There's type somebody, of person yeah i think it's her her confidence and but yeah you're right i guess um they're yeah when when people in huge numbers respond to the same thing quite emotionally and then yeah that there must be some universal yeah youngian thing that you're responding to it's it can't be just that there's a great PR team or whatever. Yeah. No, there must yeah. be some essential resonance. Now, where did you graduate to uh, after Bette Midler? Not necessarily in terms of crushes, <laughs> in terms of your, uh, what was you felt like your next attachment? Um, then comedy. So, yeah, when I was 11 and 13-ish, um, comedy. And I started doing stand-up when I was, I had braces and I'd be in my school uniform and come from school smoking <laughs> this weird sort of circus act and um, did it every <laughs> night of the week and and but that's a high like any other isn't it yes very much but what what was your act like you say circus act well you got some props I'm guessing no I just oh it's I mean I went through so many different just imitating people basically because mm. I didn't know who I was so I was I went through a phase where I was just doing but basically Bill Hicks stuff you know and then uh, so you're smoking, smoking in a three piece d- suit, you're a little kid. <laughs> yeah, doing, like character. And I did character stuff and just tried all kinds of things. All so terrible. Thank God, like no one had you know smartphones. Isn't it interesting? One of the things I identify with there, mate, is this uh, idea of being a little kid and not feeling particularly connected to the place where I was and feeling a little bit lost and adrift. Yeah. And for uh, for me, like, you know, when I first sort of via my cousins heard the Smiths and then sort of looked into the character of Morrissey, so I'd think, oh, okay, this guy. And like, you know, like he's someone that's beautifying outsiderness and yeah. vulnerability, like your status. And that, that's the, that can be a bit of an access point. And then, like, through Morrissey, you get to learn about, oh, Morrissey's into James Dean, so you start getting into that type of cinema, and Morrissey's into Oscar Wilde, so you start yeah. learning about Oscar Wilde, and, you know, then you get into aesthetics. It's interesting, isn't it, how sort of, you know, like, 
I suppose as a person, my framework for understanding reality is spirituality and specifically spirituality through the lens of addiction. So it's about um, understanding how I form attachments. But culture does have a great potency and can be a way to understand yourself in a situation in the world. It has Mm. great beauty in it so and like bill hicks again was a very significant figure for me because like you know in a i suppose slightly more not sophisticated way perhaps a more mature way i don't know because i was an adult when i first saw bill hicks and Mm. i thought oh my god that's how you're supposed to do stand-up comedy it must have been very curious to be a tiny little kid and trying to appropriate that kind of stuff yeah i guess i must have i mean it's hard to remember how i felt at the time i must have felt a sense of otherness and then especially in in high school and probably feeling a bit gay and then going and finding a comedy club where people were not only like declaring what was different about them and weird, but then being applauded for it. And and yeah, that's, I think, probably pretty mind-blowing. Yeah, it probably is. Yeah. Is it true here, I'm just looking at my notes, that you turned up smoking a cigarette like quite early, like you were smoking cigarettes on stage? I just thought comedians smoke. (laughs) I I, I thought that was, I'd seen like Richard Pryor and stuff, so I... I uh, yeah I went on smoke. with a cigarette and people were just up, I mean they were so it was silent but they were it was like concerned silence because they were like <laughs> who has allowed this to happen like, who should we should, who should we notify you know yeah that some notification yeah. would have been like so you were uh, it was the famous second city the second city like started in Chicago but it's sort of like a byword for sort of improvisational brilliance and sort of the sort of vanguard of comedy right so you yeah. were involved when you were a little kid in that world were you yeah I started. Um, yeah, I started out there for a few years and then uh and then eventually when drugs kind of took over and replaced comedy then I got banned from Second City for 2 years from and that was devastating cuz I loved it and idolized all those people and I think suddenly everyone twigged oh, this person is too young to be so high all the time in this building so then I got banned from there. But what was the problem? It. What were you doing? I mean everything. Like mostly uh, coke was it was the big one. Yeah. So I had all this disposable cash from comedy too. I think I just don't give a teenager any money, I think. No, it's a very natural conclusion to having money as a teenager. What are you going to do? You're not like yeah. you can't do what buy models and make yeah. them <laughs> in your bedroom. Even then, there's the glue. Yeah. So like you, you're going to find your way to substances if you've got cash. You're getting paid cash in hand for doing yeah, live gigs. Pretty much, yeah. And then it's around, and and then I guess I obviously had this predisposition, you know, because a lot of people. Do coke and never want to do it again. That's right. Yeah, yeah, we have the predisposition. Were you doing drugs with adults? Yeah, big time. That's weird, yeah. isn't it? Yeah, I, looking back, I think it's weird. At the time, it felt so natural. Because I wouldn't give a child drugs. <laughs> no. That's my, that's, I'm going to come out on a limb. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But so I suppose, but thinking about it, the first time I got heroin, it was off some children. Like they were really, little, yeah. Little sort of. I mean, I'm, I'm, I don't know if they were Turkish. I've always assumed they were Turkish, but that's just my personal bigotry. They were sort of young, <laughs> dark-skinned lads in Hackney. Yeah. And I was only like 19 myself, but they were possibly 13. They were adorable just... pair of guys just skinning <laughs> up with heroin. And I got some off of them. Yeah. It's absolutely terrific, as you might imagine. And, yeah. <laughs> but, yeah, but really, that's a sort of... A, it's interesting that... So you, you've you had the access to the world of comedy now, but you sort of blundered headlong into, the, into addiction, I suppose. You were yeah. dealing drugs as well. Yeah, I was very... I think I was with these adults who were doing drugs. I think I was very convincing, you know, about not being a teenager. I mean, they knew I was, but I was... I think I... 
I really did my best to put everyone at ease with doing drugs with me. You know, it's not a big deal. And so yeah. I don't, you know, they weren't villains, but they're definitely a, there's some inappropriate behavior for sure. Yeah, let's not judge them. Yeah. Now, what about the, uh, the drug dealing? Any good at drug dealing, were you? No. Tell me the key no. problems. <laughs> you just, you just, yeah, terrible at it. Bad at math, bad yeah. at self-control, um, sort of owing a lot of people a lot of money. It's quite scary very quickly. Um, yeah. Probably you broke Biggie Smalls' golden rule, don't get high on your own supply. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> You've got to learn from Biggie I if know. we're going to be drug dealers. I did a small amount of miserable, measly, unsuccessful drug dealing myself. Did you? Yeah, my mate Mark gave me like quite a lot of amphetamine. He said, sell that at your school and you can make some profits. And I thought, hello, Mark. I like this business model. But the problem was is that I was friends with a couple of bigger boys and like <laughs> they took some of those drugs and I couldn't keep charging them because of just it was like there was too much fear in the relationship and I ended up swapping my bicycle and I took too much of the amphetamines and it ruined my performance as Macbeth, if I may say so. <laughs> I think I'd have been a lot better. I would as... pay so much money to see you during Macbeth as well, a teen. You... <laughs> <laughs> you wouldn't have liked it, mate, because it was regarded as failure. <laughs> I was like, you know, like when you're at drama school, they divide up a play into all the various, you know, like because everyone's got to have a go at being Macbeth, innit? Right, right, right. Okay. So I was just doing one bit. The bit yeah. I was doing is he's just murdered King Duncan. I don't know if you're familiar with the play. And he comes out with his the daggers, right? Or sort of when he's just done a terrible murder and he feels all awful about it because he shouldn't have done it you know and like but I, like because i wasn't the type of actor who would do any prep I would, instead of prep <laughs> i thought speed right so i'd done some speed instead of like learning about daggers and you know murders and stuff like that so i come staggering out as a kite with and I've just got butter knives out of the canteen <laughs> right so the back like you wouldn't be able to murder a king with like that's those butter knives would you no and did you had you learned the words or not Oh, yeah, learn yeah, them. I learned those words. <laughs> but I think what it would have been, you know, like an amphetamine drug is going to make you, I think it doesn't put you in the pit of your belly. It took you into, or puts you into the upper chakras. Yeah. Whereas I think doing a murder, you'd probably be really in your guts. Yeah. It's a very earthed <laughs> thing, isn't it, to murder someone? Particularly if you had had to do it with a butter knife, you'd have had to have been plunging <laughs> away at those ribs. Yeah, you'd have, I mean, your pupils would be dilated, you'd be sweaty, but yeah, you're right. I know, I thought that what I was doing was a good job. But, you know, at the end, when they tell you whether or not you had done a good job, their teacher said that was not a good job. Unanimously. (laughs) (laughs) Only one lad in the year below said, I thought you were good the way you'd done that. It was mental. (laughs) I said, thanks, I'll cling on to that. Was that Mark, though? (laughs) (laughs) He was not a a person whose opinion could be relied upon and (laughs) he didn't have any kudos within the school system. Certainly I couldn't use it to, um, As a press quote, yeah, no, like, that lad in the low year thought I was good. Well, where is, who is he? I no, did, um, I, when I was in year four, I guess, maybe I was eight or nine, I did Charlie Brown and I played Charlie Brown. It was like my, my crowning moment in school. And uh, I took it so seriously that I did this monologue in it and I cried real tears. Like I really went for it. Wow. And it was so, I mean, it's a, it's a comedy. But everyone was horrified they thought something had gone wrong why was it about charlie's monologue that made you think tears would be appropriate may well i'll tell you he's sitting at lunch and there's this girl over there and she's ignoring him and he just wants to share his peanut butter sandwich and then he he's like oh nobody likes me and then i really went for it i got really felt it my my parents were like waving at me (laughs) you're crying your little eyes out yeah 
floods of tears as Charlie <laughs> Brown over what some would think of as a minor misdemeanor. But I think in that were the seeds of what would become a great career as a performer. Thanks. May, I'm going to stop you there, delightful as you may be, to do an advert. What if you could give back while you slept? Oh, it's impossible. You can't. You're asleep. You can. Lisa is an innovative, direct-to-consumer online mattress brand that is also, about time too, socially conscious. Driven by the mission to provide a better place to sleep for everybody, for every 10 mattresses Lisa sells, they donate one to a shelter through their 110 program. What a brilliant idea. Not to mention, Lisa also plants one tree for every mattress sold and donates 1% of each employee's time to volunteer for local causes. Responsible capitalism is what we're discussing here, I think. But best of all, Lisa's patented universal adaptive feel is designed for all types of sleepers and features three premium foam layers, including one, two-inch Avena foam for cooling and breathability, two-inch memory foam middle layer for body contouring and pressure relief. And you might be thinking, well, that's two nice levels, but... What about my core support? There's a six-inch dense core support foam for durability and structure for sleepers of all sizes. And available online in the US, UK, Canada and Germany or at the Lisa Dream Gallery in NYC, the 100% American-made mattress ships compressed in a box to your door so you can save a trip to the store. No wonder it's a Forbes Top 20 startups to watch. If you've received a mattress and have time, please give a personal endorsement. Try a Lisa mattress in your own home for 100 nights risk-free. I always do a joke there with free shipping always and get 80 quid off when you go to leesa.com and use the promo code under the skin do use that because then people think hang on a minute this under the skin thing is making us a fortune that's leesa.com promo code under the skin now it's back to under the skin so (laughs) one of the things you talk about in your show uh, dope is sort of neurological and scientific representations of what you've experienced personally tell us a little bit about that well, I mean, look, I've watched some TED Talks. I've read. <laughs> so I'm not I, – I definitely will get it all wrong, I think. But I, there's this um, addiction specialist called Gabor Mate. Do you know him? Yeah, I'm fascinated by him. I was reading his book last night, and I think we're going to get him on this podcast. Tell I, us what you yeah, think. Yeah, I interviewed him for um, – and he's like – he could have a cult. He's so amazing. Really? His voice is so deep, and he'd be you'd, – you'd love to speak to him. Go on. So you interviewed him. Tell me all about this. Well, he, he talks about dopamine levels and um, – like uh, if you one of the theories is if you have a dopamine deficiency then when you do get a hit of that pleasure chemical it's so overwhelming and then the cravings really intense so that's mm. what he talks about and about looking at the origins of addiction in in early childhood where your brain chemistry is all getting wired up and stuff like that but that can be quite uncomfortable i think looking at your own early childhood why well i don't know i it's hard, isn't it? Because you want to take full responsibility for all your actions. Yes. And you never want to feel like you're casting blame, especially on your parents. Who no. You, but everybody, I mean, we're so fragile and we've all got weird, you know. That's one of the challenges, I think, May, of the pathological model of addiction is that it kind of places people that are addicts in the position of a kind of sufferer and yeah. a victim. Yeah. Like, you know, oh, I can't do anything about it. I'm all poorly. It also lets the culture off the hook, you know, where there are sort of so many cultural forces that you one imagines and it seems to suggest exacerbate addiction, inequality. Yeah. Poverty, persecution, like, you know, I'm talking particularly about, you know, sort of in, within uh, America. Yeah. But it's sort of, it's 
it's interesting to note the theories of Gabor Mate that, that dopamine deficiency could be the biochemical mm. root of what we identify as addiction. And it would also make sense of the idea that the patterns are replicated regardless of the object, whether it's a sort of a crazy relationship, a substance, a career in yeah. comedy or Bette Midler. You're sort of chasing the same thing. Yeah, exactly. And I think... Um I've also been really interested in. I didn't realize um, like how malleable we are and how your how, how you can affect your brain chemistry with just things like your social environment. I mean, even now as adults, and you can boost your dopamine levels with exercise and things. I just didn't know we were so uh, malleable. Yeah, right. You had it's a sort of a fatalistic model of just like, oh, I'm just this. This is how I feel. Yeah. This is something I'm learning about now. Like, sort of, well, go and live in the country. Don't yeah. stimulate yourself into a frenzy. Totally. Meditate twice a day. Do exercise. Don't look at pornography. Like, yeah. it's sort of like very sort of simple rules of how to create a space in your consciousness that's pleasant. Yeah, I'm still getting there. You've, yeah, everything you said then sounds so nice. Wow, what's your life like now, May Martin? I'm just running around. I'm on my phone a lot. I, I don't know. I, I probably drink too much. I, I mean, but I'm, I, you know, I exercise. I'm, eat, I eat really well. I'm trying to, like, it's balance, isn't it? I'm, I know I should live in the country. I should live in the woods, but it's hard, isn't it? Yeah, it's really hard down them woods. Why, yeah. why haven't you got embraced an abstinence model if you've identified as an addict quite early in your life? And I'm going to be really puritanical and judgmental now for a bit. Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, I don't. Yeah, yeah. I've never, I've never, I don't drink every day. I, Mm, uh, you're that's right. not gonna work. Uh, no, I know, <laughs> no, you're right. I think it's the next thing to go, probably. But um, you're thirty. You're successful. So, but like, like, what is interesting when you're in that position? Because I had this weird little rush in early life where I was like 24 and I was being on MTV and I had a radio show on XFM. Maybe it was even coming out of one of these bloody rooms, like this one. It was certainly this building. But I like at that point was escalating as a drug addict you know when you're saying when you was a young person you had access suddenly to ready money yeah. that's like just addiction fuel they might as well have paid me in heroin yeah they saved me the exchange you know so like now that you're now that you're at this position you're becoming successful you're on the precipice i would imagine of a sort of a different kind of success that tipping point we're probably going to get your own tv show soon possibly you'll make a film <laughs> and all those kind of things that'd be nice it's probably going to happen so like what are you gonna do to stay stable, on the straight and narrow. Yeah. I think, um, I, I mean, I, I practice like pretty rigorous, um, you know, therapy and things. I go to NA and I, and I surround myself with really good people and, I, yeah. So I you're think. in support groups and you're in therapy. I I go to support groups and I'm also in therapy. And I'm always what I'm continually looking for is what is the most recent, you know, like or current rather, what is the current manifestation of my addictive behaviour? Yeah. And that's when it starts to, be, you know, given that as we've talked through your route, you know, like sort of the seemingly innocuous and culturally recognisable and acceptable forms of addiction, right until it eventually necessarily, in fact, deposits you if you're an extreme addict right in the arse end of chemical dependency, or if you'd have a less severe strain, one can hover along, you know, sort of in banal forms of mental tyranny through addiction. Yeah. Me, what I have to do is sort of like look at like the thing that I like about uh, 12 step recovery the type of recovery that I believe in is it brings you to a place that's uh, recognisable from other forms of spirituality i.e. stay in the moment try not to be so self-obsessed yeah. do service for other people like yeah. things that like oh this crops up in every bloody religion this does and it sort of really really works yeah that stuff keeps cropping up it's got to be the route to 
the solution for sure. I think, um, yeah, being vigilant and uh, yeah, I got to get into nature though. I mean, it's I'm really bad with with technology. How are you with that? With your phone? Bad. Like yeah. if I, I like what I've done now. My friend over there, Jenny, who works here, I don't have my password no more for. Um, for Twitter. Really? Otherwise, yeah, like, because what I do is I tell myself, I'm just, because I'm on a book tour, I'm just having a look for business reasons. Yeah. But before long, you know, you get too deep into it. And those, all of those apps are designed. Now people that have, you know, come from Silicon Valley and worked on those projects are saying, you know, like, well, it's deliberately designed to sort of trigger a response. It's not yeah. evil. You make cakes so that they're attractive and appealing. That's what you do. You're not going to make an app so it's bloody boring. Yeah. You know, it's done to do that, isn't it? It's crazy. And everyone, I mean, everyone kind of casually says, oh, yeah, we're all addicted to our phones. And it's like, no, guys, we are all addicted to our phones. It's quite, it's quite bad. <laughs> Isn't it, guys? Yeah, guys. Guys! Yeah. Because, like, one of the things it said in this article that I was reading in The, uh, the Guardian the other day was that, like, it's com- some, your, your attention is being continually competed for. You, yeah. don't, you don't know how to come down. Like, sometimes the, the desire to look at my phone is so overwhelming. It's ridiculous. Like, no. something, like, like, and the guy, this guy that designed the like button for Facebook, before that it had been some other type of button. He came up with it. He's just some sort of 13, I don't know, he does a job that I can't even conceptualise in my <laughs> mind. But he came up with a like button. He says he don't even bring his phone upstairs no more. He plugs it in in the kitchen at 7 p.m. and that's it. That's the end of it. He's like he's had his personal assistant de uh, like take all the uh, put child proofing on his phone so he really? himself can't download apps. So the people that know the score about tech are saying watch it because David Foster Wallace perspicaciously 10 years ago or whenever he sadly died was saying we're going to this was before handheld phones really I think you mm. know or certainly smartphones. He was saying we're not far away from a society where you're staring at a screen all the time and the people on the other side of it don't love you and they just want to sell things to you. Yeah. And now we are living in that. Yeah, and it's also worrying with uh, parenting and stuff. I mean, you see families out and there's this screen between the child and the parent. And uh, yeah, actually that doctor talks about it. about uh, Gabor Mate. Yeah, he does. He says it's... Because um, it's not a physical separation with the child, but it's proximal separation because you're not making eye contact, you're not connecting, and that stuff is so crucial for um, brain development. What does that mean, proximal separation? I don't know. <laughs> I have no idea. Mm. I think it means not physically separated, but... <laughs> you're separated because you're in a different space, ultimately, yeah. right? Like approximate, proxy, proxy. Mm. Yeah, right. So the little kid, in this case, my little kid, yeah. is staring <laughs> at uh, in the night garden on yeah. this bloody special iPad that I bought for children because yeah. uh, like the thing is is that the child does prefer in the night garden to us its yeah, parents yeah, yeah, yeah. like given the choice like if you asked it who do you want to live with in the night garden yeah. or your parents would go in the night garden I don't even care 100%. about them they're idiots I'm bored particularly of that one with the beard <laughs> don't talk about your mother like that now that is what people might call a cheap joke but it's a joke nonetheless and I think I'm to be encouraged in my ongoing quest to make up jokes yeah coming in main mind so you identified as an addict quite, quite early in your life you're a person that's on the periphery and precipice of interesting cultural ideas. You're old enough to understand it and to present it. You're working from lived experience. Hmm, you're an important, fascinating figure. <laughs> Tell me what you're going to do now. Um, I'm, I'm about to go on tour. Um, oh, yeah. This is my first tour. With Dope? 
Yeah, it's a very different tour than your show called Dope. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> and it's uh, I'm getting on trains. I'm staying in Ibis hotels. I'm doing it. Oh no! Yeah, no. I mean, haven't they got like a machine in the corridor that sells food? Yeah, and it's you mm. can be in the bed and also washing your hands at the same time. There's like a little sink. Like the bathroom is within. That could be convenient in some circumstances. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But mostly it's troubling. Yeah. You're um, in Ibis hotels. I'm in Ibis hotels, That's yeah. That's an Egyptian bird. You're washing your hands <laughs> in a sink. You're laying there in the bed. You're on tour. How have you started? Um, no, I start tonight. I'm going to Oxford. And then... The uh, Oxford Playhouse? Uh, Glee Club. Glee Club. Are <laughs> yeah. you ready for this? The Glee Club. For your whole touring <laughs> life? Yeah, I think so. It's not that... Crazy. It's How many just, shows a week? It's only about 18 shows in total, so it's pretty cash. I think I'll get friends to come visit me, and I think it'll be fun. And then I'm meant to be writing a book about um, for 14-year-olds for about sexuality. So I'm going to try and write it while I'm on tour. Hold on. Let's quickly promote properly the May Martin uh, stand-up show, Dope. How do people get tickets for that? Um, I think they're on maymartin.net. Go on maymartin.net. Buy tickets to see May Martin. Thanks. What can I anticipate in this show? I hate that question when I'm asked it. Let me see if I can pose it better. Tell us something about your show, please, that's good to promote it. I mean, it's everything we just talked about, but with um, jokes. What kind, of, what kind of meters do you go in? Are you mostly in this type of mood, or do you sometimes go jagged and mad or shouty, or like, you know, your Charlie Brown performance? <laughs> I'm mostly like this. I guess I... I guess I get a little more energetic, but I'm mostly like this. You're extremely affable. Thanks. I think I'm. I think I'm affable on stage. Um, yeah, you're likable, aren't you? <laughs> I tell you what's good is um, while dealing with this complex new language around identity and and people, older people having to re-examine their unconscious prejudices. It's nice to meet people that are potentially um, able to explain and convey that information that don't press buttons that like, you know, a decade or so ago uh, would have prevented progress. I get loads of um, people, well, more when I talked about sexuality a lot on stage, I'd get people bringing their parents and then coming out to their parents in front of me like they'd They'd wait to meet me, and then they'd choose that moment to say to their parents, actually, I'm I'm gay. I'm so not equipped to kind of mediate that exchange, but <laughs> and, uh, it was amazing. And, and I guess they, the parents had just seen the show, so they were feeling, a, you know, they were in a positive mood. And, and then one time a girl said, I'm, Dad, I'm bisexual. And, fr- and, and then her dad said, yeah, me too. It was crazy. Whoa! I know. And then they asked if I wanted to go to GAY. I see you're bisexual and I raise you. I'm bisexual. He was like, Hold on, I'm not fucking having that, Dad. <laughs> yeah. He was like, why do you think I have this earring? He literally said that. That's my bisexual earring that I wear. Yeah. That's an amazing moment. So you're like the priest of uh, coming out into sort of modern gender fluidity and sexual fluidity and freeing yourself from previous paradigms. I'm, I'm more, I feel like... Um, uh, ill-equipped sometimes but i get people often confessing their gay things to me like people going my wife is in the toilet but i just need to tell you i did give a blowjob once and i'm like okay cool well done mate no yeah, problem yeah yeah, yeah. Right. yeah yeah oh i love the show yeah. by the way. <laughs> <laughs> they're just using you as a sort of a vessel for yeah. their shame about their sexuality it is a great pity isn't it that uh that we've become unable to live our own shadows that our culture has taught us that there are aspects of our sexual self and identity self that are unacceptable i don't want to live feeling shame and stuff no. i think i'm going to come see your show god knows what the post-show review oh may right there was a time of the allotments i don't know what was going on i set fire to a garage and i cuddled a man's leg ah! five stars do you get um 
now talking about addiction, do you get loads of people coming after shows and talking about their own experiences? Yeah, there's been a slight hiatus in, but like because I've been deliberately and assiduously promoting the book, I've not gone back. But I'm back on tour. Hey, this is good. I'm back on <laughs> tour, so like I'm gonna be like go to RussBrand.com. I'm on tour again for the next sort of six months, oh right? Oh my god! Yeah, and as you, I'm sure, are aware, I do my level best to appear messianic and shamanic while on stage. Going so far as even in the intervals to sort of swan about like St. Francis of Assisi, sort of all like wave. Like, oh, you'd really like it. Yeah. Like, imagine this it's the interval. The show's not even going to be happening now, right? I could be <laughs> off somewhere. You should be enjoying your Maltesers. Oh, no. I'm swanning around in the auditorium, <laughs> posting my top off, looking all like I'm sad about something on the edge of my mind. Oh, I'm all sad about something. You wouldn't understand. It's too deep. And like, then people come up and like maybe get sort of. My friend Matt, who I do the radio show with, goes, I've seen too many photos of you on Instagram looking like you're doing blessings. <laughs> Walking through touching babies and that. That's right. I'm no doing babies. a lot of that. Yeah, just very on the top of the head. Like, so like, um, why don't you try a bit of that? Walking around. Yeah. Yeah, I'm, Blessings. I'm very available, too available after the show. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Are you a single person currently? Yeah, I am. Yeah. Uh-oh, that's dangerous on tour, isn't it? I think, I'll, I mean, people, yeah, I do get a lot of couples, actually. Oh. That's my, that seems to be my niche. Like, that's because the, we want to have a go. That's the propositions I get. Ooh, I don't know about that. Of course, I think, I don't know if it was because of the old inculcation and acculturation early in life, but I've never been that at ease around males and sex. I've been at an orgy where there's been men, and as a younger man, I was involved in a few threesomes that had a man in them. I, I don't like it's it. It's not your thing. Yeah. No, I need the gentleness uh, and nurture of femininity. It very much yeah. resonated with me when you talked about Bette Midler's potent matriarch that's some of the energy i'm going for of course that's all i'm literally a married man with (laughs) a a baby and incredibly happy now but if we're going to talk about one sexual brand yeah it's that stuff but you couples is it yeah they i get i get i get propositions from couples yeah Post your show yeah. sounds amazing. People, are, oh, I did a blowjob once. Hey, I'm gay. <laughs> yeah, me too. Yeah. <laughs> oh, let's go to the yeah. Hey, do you want to come home with us right now? What's it's, going on, mate? It's pretty exciting. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I just. Get straight back in the bloody cab and back to the Ibis. I know. That's my advice. If I was your tour manager, I'd be slamming that van door shut. Lock me away in the Ibis, yeah. Is that really an Egyptian bird? I think so. Sounds like the sort of thing that might be true. It's probably some sort of stalk, probably deliver of new life. I mean, why would they have selected that word? We'll work it out eventually. Everything reappropriated by the corporate world, everything (laughs) rebranded. So did you ever take up these couples on their mad office? I mean, it's a wildly inappropriate and personal question, isn't it? Why would you answer that? Um, I I have, but not post-show. Yeah, you know you got to meet up. <laughs> Any good, or do you get sort of caught up in the social dynamics? No, I, I think if I think I wouldn't mind if it was three individuals who just met. That's always the, my favourite. Yeah, setup in those with, days, right? Because with a couple, I, they've got their own thing. They keep telling each other they love each other throughout. Oh yeah, and you're on the no, edge. Nobody loves me. Once, as a younger man in freer and more liberal time. Oh, everyone loves you. You're beautiful. <laughs> Don't say that. Uh, like I, I was, was sleeping with two humans, and them two humans really liked each other more than me. But I just it thought, oh, this is nice that they found each other yeah. via me. Off they went into the sunset. <laughs> they were very yeah. happy together. It was sort of, it was quite amazing because it 
crossed over from carnality. I mean, this is the thing that sort of interests me about sex, actually. I've never been an overt, mechanised, con- uh, conventionally male person sexually. I, I do enjoy the opportunity for a kind of transcendent union that can occur, that there is, even in the most promiscuous and fleeting encounters, a kind of thing that feels like love very much, yeah. although it can't be sustained in a relationship. But you're not asking it to do that if you're just banding about at the eyeballs. <laughs> yeah, I'm banding about. I agree, though. I think um, those, I mean... You're just getting a hit of those love hormones. It's the same feeling. It just is, a, yeah, temporary. Like, yeah, yeah, that's yeah. right. I sort of once said, like, that, uh, well, why is longevity the key component? You can fall in love with someone just in a moment, and that's enough. In fact, George Orwell writes, and I quote this a lot, it's on the first page of Homage to Catalonia, one of the few pages of Homage to Catalonia that I've read. He goes, like, he's in line to sign up for Poom or some anarchist group to fight in the Spanish Civil War, and the bloke in front of him is this Italian geezer with ginger air, and he said he loved him. And he knew that he could love him, like just really? in that moment. And he never sort of saw him again. There was just something about the man that was very, very beautiful. And you know these sort of senses of solidarity that can occur in crisis. This thing that we are looking for. Yeah. This connection. Definitely. I think wouldn't it be nice if because I I hate breakups. I hate it. I don't know why we do it. But I think um, imagine if there was a two week time limit. So you meet someone, you fall in love, but you've both got a microchip or something that if you. <laughs> After wait, I haven't thought it through. Hold on, After, this is, yeah, trip. I'm done <laughs> okay. with this. You After meet someone two weeks, two weeks heaven, like euphoric, and then you both know after two weeks you gotta never see each other again. Oh God, mate, this is awful. No, I'm not good. doing that. It's good because it prevents any attachment. Yeah, I don't know. I, I mate, that's gonna be heartbreaking. You've only got two weeks. One thing about like yeah. marital life, not one, the one thing. One of the many things she might listen to, she won't. She don't care about my career. <laughs> the, one of the many things, just in case. One of the many things that I like about marital life is the sense, and I had it this morning when I got out of bed. Is like, oh, please God, be going to bed with this person again tonight, and I don't have to worry no yeah. more. And hopefully, this life will be a continuation of going to bed with this person. And then one of us will die. That's the terrible bit at the end. Well, well in your version, it happens in a fortnight. It's much too quick. I know you're right. I mean, my my parents are um, madly in love. They've been together. Wow. Yeah, it's it's crazy having that model of monogamy. They're they're, I mean, crazy. Like talk about their sex life all the time, and just you can just see it. They're so they hang on each other's words. It's crazy. So yes. I guess it can happen. Also, it's given uh, you, it seems like you've been developed in a crucible where you've been uh, able to embrace yourself outside of what was formerly known as convention. Now, what about this book you're writing? That sounds quite fascinating. Tell me a bit more about that. Well, it's tricky. How do you do, how do, you do it? How do you hit deadlines and... S- be disciplined about it it's so tricky i'm trying to write it now Two thousand um, words a day what's the total how many words has it got to be 50, 50 Two thousand words a day you've got to make that commitment but it might be hard for you to do it while you're on tour uh, yeah but it flows out of you i'm like like typing like this and uh i am um, yeah but it'll be good it's the the idea is to write the book that you that i wish i had when i was 14 well that's brilliant yeah about sexuality it's all about sort of fluid sexuality and so go on then how's it going to work so, I don't know. It's oh, how to write it? Yeah, not the pragmatic. Oh, yeah. like, what is this? What did you wish you had when you were fourteen-year-old? You? Um, well, I guess I had a unique experience that my parents were amazing, but it's I'm, I'm, it's a combination of per- embarrassing personal anecdotes about sexuality. And do one, do gender. one, do an embarrassing anecdote. Do oh, one, do one, do an embarrassing <laughs> anecdote. I mean, I think I'm going to tell this story about 
my brother, when he was a toddler, went underneath the... This is not embarrassing to me, so it's easy to volunteer. He but we t- asked for an embarrassing <laughs> anecdote. <laughs> he toddled under the table. My dad was like a nudist. He was always naked and uh, has an enormous penis, my father. And he was, he was sitting Make there. Make a note of that. And then my brother toddled under the table and bit the, the tip of my dad's dick. And um, my dad... I forget what the punchline of the well, story Well, mate, you better find one because it's the, really horrific. The pipe of the story is your brother beat your dad on the dick. So if we don't find some conclusion, we're all left with the image. I know. Of, right, so it's to do with helping 14 year olds come out with gender fluidity. Now, so far, what we've got this is, is your dad's wrong. got a massive willy. Your little brother goes under the table and bites your dad on the willy. Now, we've got I've made some... the wrong choice with anecdotes. I asked for an embarrassing one. What that was was challenging. That's a challenging yeah. anecdote. I think, well, the. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. It's the only dirt I have on my brother. He's lived the cleanest <laughs> life, and I, I remind him of it. So. Yeah. Right, that's good to keep your, your brother. He's just trying to get on with his life as a professional person. And here I am doing this. What? So you bit dad on the dick. So yeah. that's before you start judging me for being at the vanguard of new identity <laughs> politics and being a beguiling androgynous <laughs> wonder figure up on the stage. Let's never forget that day where you bit dad on the dick. Oh, can you stop bringing that up? Yeah, it's when he says, oh, I've never done anything with a guy. And I go, well, well. dad's massive dick. <laughs> and the emphasis of the size, like which, you know, in a sense, the story didn't need. No, I know. I you know. added that, which I think gave the story real sort of weight, I actually. he never watches this or hears it who the brother or your dad either <laughs> yeah, we don't want anyone and like yeah. it was meant to be an embarrassing story about you may yeah where is that story um i uh i talk about um i my first boyfriend was called ian peach and uh that was his real name and then um we he bro- broke up with me and um and then years later i was doing an interview and they said why do you think you're gay which is a tricky question and also just a lot of assumptions in that question, but yeah, I why said, do you think you've got brown hair? Yeah, and I just panicked and said, "Well, maybe Ian Peach," but they misquoted me and they heard maybe eating a peach. In so it was a bizarre, and they refused to change it. They're like, "That's what you said." And no, Ian Peach. Look here, he is in the yearbook. Yeah. Well, no, that does make sense. He's hideous. Ah, <laughs> oh, poor Ian Peach. But eating a peach does have, let's face it, powerful, potent. <laughs> undertones which seem to have been present throughout much of this interview and occasionally they spike into awareness in some ghoulish familial yeah. anecdote or the image of you in an ibis bed yeah my mum has a google alert set up with my name you know anytime my name comes up she gets an email so then she got an email with that interview about eating a peach and was, i got this phone call like is that really how you feel is that we gave your brother the same peaches i don't know what they were so stressed about it yeah, and your father must be a man that's constantly on the precipice worrying about the tip of his giant willy yeah, yeah. getting gnawed off by one of the offspring. Yeah, yeah. Extraordinary and magnificent person you are. Let's make sure that we've covered everything that we need to cover. Right, you're writing that book, uh, Can Everyone Please Calm Down, right? Is that you're gonna, yeah. definitely going to call it that? When's that going to be well, out? I don't know. If you've got other ideas, I'm... Um, that's Can everyone please and... calm down? Sounds quite good, quite good. Might be too long, but I quite like it. I'm yeah. not very good at titles. That's, um, that's quite good. July comes out. Good, brilliant, yeah. brilliant. And also, you're on tour now, and we should go to maymartin.net to get our tickets. When I'll come and see you. I'll come and see you somewhere. That'd be great. Maybe we're in the same place at the same time. Right. That's. I mean, that'd be confusing for the audience. <laughs> yeah. <laughs>
<laughs> I mean, I'd be very silly there. That's, that's the second joke in an hour time frame for a man calling himself a professional comedian and charging money. I've made zero basis. jokes, but I've had a nice time. You're very beguiling and charming. <laughs> After a book signing recently, this person identifying as binary and I, we ran into each other in the park and we perched on a bench together. No way. And I said, explain this to me, will you then, as we're here? And they explained to me, well, what it is is... Like, I don't feel like I want to identify with either of those categories. I'm an actor, and I'm going to go to this school and learn about acting. And I felt like it... I felt sort of both old and young simultaneously as I reached across time to this person, and they explained new grammar, new words. And I realised that the important thing, the thing that all of us have to learn, is a kind of non-judgment and a willingness to let go of our systems of categorization because not only are they impeding others they're probably impeding ourselves and facilitating this bizarre tendency we have as human beings to cast our shadow outwards whether that's as individuals or as whole societies you see the role of many many oppressed and persecuted groups being to bear the uh, hegemony's inability to look at its wounds the inability of, of the power base of the united states to own its own wound or currently what we would term as islamophobia or many of the things emerging from the various forms of identity politics so it's sort of i can feel something shifting in my head that i kind of quite like is I, it good yeah that's so good that's so exciting same though I, yeah and it's changing all the time it's yeah it's, i think it's an exciting time at least that's a positive thing we can i mean i i think a demonstrably positive thing that that these things are shifting and there's so much badness going on that that's a really positive thing that people are changing their thoughts on labels and identity and i think that we're headed in the right direction there and that's a pretty simple thing we can sort out as humans you'd think like we, could, we should be able to do that, right? It's making a lot of people a bit cross, but I think they're going to be ultimately all right. And, and, and I think it will be very freeing and liberating for a lot of people that sort of come scrambling up to you after your show <laughs> and yeah. say, I don't have a blowjob! Yeah. <laughs> like, oh, don't worry, mate, it's going to be all right. Yeah. Yeah. Hopefully. Oh, mate, Martin, that's been a really, really wonderful interview. Let me make me sure that I've done all of my proper jobs. Proper jobs done, proper jobs done, promo done, promo done. There's this little, little note there. May is bisexual. Nice, yeah. <laughs> That's what May is. May <laughs> thinks we need to reframe the way we think about sexuality and refers to the stat that 40% of people under 25 don't identify as gay or straight. I like that because that for me seems like the evolution of consciousness. Like young people coming through, they're smarter now. Yeah. They are awakening. They're not going to accept the old ways and the old, old codes. Brilliant. Is that yeah, good? I've, yeah, I have friends in Canada who, I mean, I guess they're straight. Like they've only ever been with, the opposite sex but they're like i'm just not going to call myself that because what if i meet someone tomorrow and then i have to come out like that's stressful so why not never say you're anything and then never have the stress do you know much about what's going on in affiliation with these around sort of no platforming particularly within academia within yeah. canada do you know anything about that sort of stuff not really i hear that phrase what does that mean no platforming. i think it means like some people can't talk at colleges because they've said something in offen- uh, something offensive oh, yeah. often around identity politics but i don't know much about it but i know it's affected e.g jermaine greer yeah. around gender identity and peter tatchell around lgb Hold on a second. LGBTQ issues. Yeah. So like, and and that if you're my age, both of those people stand as sort of great civil rights giants. Yeah. So it's sort of interesting and curious, but there's no reason why you have to be the you know authority on oh, that. Yeah, I have no idea, but it is so interesting. Yeah, I don't know where I, I don't know. It's tricky. Yeah, with freedom of speech, and then also you don't. I mean, you don't want to incite hatred and violence and stuff. So it's yeah, very. We're in. We're breaking new ground. I don't know if there is a right answer. I think it, 
No, do I? Up to student bodies, though, I guess, to take to sort of discuss it amongst themselves and have a majority. Opinion. I think you're right. I am a student. Did you know that? I no go way. to SOAS University. I'm just a young student making my way through <laughs> life. I'm just a plucky kid with a dream, I suppose, mate. <laughs> what so are you learning? Very little, because I can't focus. <laughs> I'm at SOAS and I'm doing religion in global politics. And oh, I think wow. today or tomorrow I've got to go to my new module, which is the origins of yoga in India, I think. And last year I was doing like lots of stuff about, gosh, secularism, the role of religion, rationality versus irrationality, the advent of Protestantism and this, oh my God, so much stuff. Westphalian Treaty, my mind's full of stuff. Michel Foucault, the brain's just brimming over with claptrap. It's so good, though. It is good, isn't it? To yeah. tool yourself up with the, the old... Uh, bit of cleverness just yeah. in case you're in an argument one day yeah definitely reach into that little cupboard of knowledge i love all that i mean it's a whole other conversation but i'm big into joseph campbell and stuff yeah me yeah. too so good isn't it i would i'd like to go back to school maybe i could do that listen you malleable kid <laughs> <laughs> you're wandering around you're wanting to move to the country yeah your family members are biting each other on the dick. <laughs> <laughs> You're thinking of going to university to learn more about perennialism and myth, which I am also yeah. fascinated by, because in a way we have to become the hero of our own lives. It's not actually about empirical evidence. It's about belief and faith yeah. and becoming uh, a sort of a journey of becoming, uh, becoming a hero in your own existence, which I can certainly say that you seem to have been. It's been very difficult for me to not come over there and cuddle you a bit too hard, <laughs> which I'm planning to do. The first opportunity I get. May mine. Thanks for coming in here. Thank you so much for should come and see you. I think you're wonderful and charming. Thanks. Thank you so much for having me. It's Thank you. So exciting. Been good, isn't it? Yeah, really good. We're a right couple of darlings. <laughs> Thanks, mate. That show was sponsored by Recovery. You can get Recovery by going to Amazon or RussellBrand.com. Come, or you can get the audiobook. The audiobook's very good. Get the audiobook. Imagine this voice now, but reading a book at you. Love it. And come and see the Rebirth Tour. Leeds, 18th of October. Tickets for that. It's going to be a great night. London, Apollo Theatre, 31st of October and 1st of November. Oh, it's a, a lot of stars are coming that night. There's going to be a lot of celebs there. It's going to be a big night. Uh, Nottingham, 2nd of November. Probably a bit. I don't know who's, who's in Nottingham. Nigel Clough might be there. Coventry, 8th of November. Larkin, Leicester, 30th of November. Jamie Vardy. Finally, if you like the show, please subscribe and review it in iTunes or wherever you, you download stuff from and only give it a five-star review. As you know, I'm very sensitive. You also might like the Radio X podcast. Check that out as well. Thanks for listening. If you know what love is, you'll know that I love you. Hmm.